KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, ever since the Supreme Court abolished the constitutional protection for abortion, activists have been fighting in the states to protect abortion rights where possible and to expand them where that's possible. And they've had some remarkable success, at least in the short run, Katha Pollitt will report. Plus, the Organization of American States released a statement recently admitting finally that the international community was responsible for the crisis ravaging Haiti today. But what is to be done now, especially about the gangs terrorizing Port-au-Prince? Amy Willens will comment. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, first, we want to talk about uh, Tuesday's primary results in Wyoming and in Alaska. Liz Cheney lost the Republican primary in Wyoming, which is not a surprise. The margin of her defeat was surprising. We saw polls saying she was 22 points behind. She lost by 37 Wyoming, of course, was the most pro-Trump state in America in 2020, 70% for Trump. But this was more than expected for the, for the pro-Trump vote. The Lincoln Project tweeted after the votes were counted, tonight the nation marks the end of the Republican Party. What remains shares the name and branding of the traditional GOP, but it is in fact an authoritarian nationalist cult dedicated only to Donald Trump, close quote. The Lincoln Project's reaction to Liz Cheney's defeat in the primary, your comment. Well, I think that's a pretty good statement, although uh, I, I'm afraid the authoritarian business goes beyond the dedication to Donald Trump. And that makes, if anything, what the Republican Party has become even more dangerous since there were all kinds of um, uh, many authoritarians and uh, not so many authoritarian <laughs> yes. uh, in, Republican, uh, in Republican positions across the country. Of course, everyone wants to know what's next for Liz Cheney. The news on Wednesday is that she went on the Today Show and said maybe she'd run in the Republican primaries for president. Yeah, it's a little conditional because uh, her main target seems to be she'll run if Trump runs. If Trump doesn't run, then we get back to the point I just made. She would still be running against a passel of authoritarians, but it's not clear that she would do that if Trump is no longer a candidate. Yeah, it would be fascinating to see a Republican debate that had Liz Cheney and Donald Trump side by side on the stage. And that's not impossible. If you remember, the Republican primaries often have six candidates, eight candidates up there, and she's certainly in the top six or eight, the way these things are decided by polling. I mean, there's only three people close to the top, and she's close to the bottom, but she probably would get three or four percent in the polls, which would probably be enough to get into the debates. Well, what's not clear is if Trump runs whether other Republicans besides Liz Cheney would run as well. Now, the one most likely to run would be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And one can imagine if DeSantis gets in, maybe Mike Pence will get in. And I notice Mike Pence 
has in the last day or so told his fellow Republicans to knock off the criticism of the FBI. <laughs> so uh, there are gradations of nuttiness within the Republican Party. And uh, how many of those gradation, gradations would actually run if Trump as a candidate remains to be seen? Although I think we can be fairly confident that Liz Cheney would be among those who do. And then Alaska had a primary. Senator Lisa Murkowski is the only Senate Republican who voted to convict Trump in his impeachment trial and who sought re-election this cycle. She seems to have survived the primary. She's one of four candidates to advance. They have a weird ranked choice system where the top four winners of the primary go into the final. And it seems like she came in first narrowly, the last results that I saw. So it looks like she might well be reelected in November. She might well be reelected. And given the uh, uh, runoff of the top four candidates in Alaska, there is always the possibility that the Democrat, whose name I do not remember, could slip through with the Republicans dividing up their votes. I, I suspect Mitch McConnell will do everything uh, that is possible to amp down ongoing Republican opposition to Lisa Murkowski. But Alaskans are considerably distanced from Washington, not simply geographically, but in other ways as well. So, you know, it, it's, it's likely she will win, but it's by no means certain. Now it's time for news of the class struggle in California, regular feature of this broadcast. Warehouse workers at Amazon's largest air freight facility on the West Coast walked off the job Monday, demanding higher pay and relief from hot conditions they said were unsafe. This is a Inland Empire, Amazon Workers United. At the San Bernardino International Airport facility, 160 employees walked off there on Monday. Amazon at San Bernardino Airport is one of the company's three U.S. air hubs. So it's absolutely essential to the functioning of the one-day delivery. 900 employees at the San Bernardino Airport warehouse have signed a petition calling for a base pay to be increased from the current $17 an hour to $22 an hour. The LA Times reported Amazon is the largest private sector employer in the, in the Inland Empire. It said there were 200,000 warehouse workers in the Inland Empire and one in five work at Amazon facilities. And Amazon spokesman said, depending on their shift, our full-time employees can earn up to $19.25 an hour and receive health care from day one, a 401k with a 50% company match, and up to 20 weeks of parental leave. And therefore, I guess they shouldn't be striking for, for $22 an hour. Well, you know, the average Amazon worker only lasts about 40 weeks on the job. So if you take if you take 20 weeks of uh, parental leave, uh, that doesn't leave much. That also has been a real limiting factor in the ability to unionize Amazon warehouses since the jobs are so enervating and so exhausting and so physically demanding that, you know, over 100 percent of the workforce turns over in the course of a single year. What's going on in the Inland Empire, I've actually written about at great length way back, oh God, uh, 13, 14 years ago, when the largest uh, employer there were the Walmart uh, warehouses. 
at the time, it was largely an immigrant worker workforce who was being badly exploited. But I think there's an element of the strategic in this particular strike that is unusual at this point. 40% of the imports into the United States come into the harbors of uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach, and most of them are trucked to these warehouses in the Inland Empire, and then they have to be distributed all around the country. And so if you manage to stop the flow of goods at the uh, airport in that vicinity, this is a little like the United Auto Workers formative strike in Flint, Michigan, where when they finally closed one of the factories that, that made, I think, the ball bearings, the, the entire workforce of General Motors uh, couldn't build cars. Uh, they needed those parts. And there might be a little echo of that, however intentional or unintentional, in closing down that warehouse. Now, one other thing. Um, there are a multiplicity of self-formed unions uh, at the moment. Uh, this is its own union uh, out there, the uh, Amazon work, the Amazon Labor Union, which was a union that organized the Staten Island uh, Amazon warehouse just yesterday uh, filed uh, for an election at uh, an Amazon warehouse in Albany. They're expanding. And Chris Smalls, who is the president of the Amazon Labor Union, has said on a uh, Zoom event where I was asking him questions that there, you know, there are a lot of these little startup unions. They should bless them all. And later on, if this continues to roll on, later on, we can worry about consolidation. Uh, but certainly what's gone on in the uh, Inland Empire is a heartening sign. And there's one other factor that is uh, in, uh, that is especially acute in, in California and in Southern California, and that is housing costs. The um, union said, the, the math here, if you make $17 an hour and work 40 hours a week, your take-home pay is about $2,200 a month. The average rent in San Berdu is $1,650 a month. That means over three quarters of their income is going just to rent. Um, and there's, of course, one other factor. It's hot as hell in San Bernardino. And of course, none of these places are, are uh, air conditioned. So they're also demanding more breaks and doing something to, to cool off right. after having to work in the 90 degree heat all day. Right, and so this is just one more manifestation of another you know, fundamental problem growing across the United States, which is the unaffordability of housing. Uh, I noted in newspapers uh, that came out on Wednesday that the rate of housing construction declined over the last two months. Uh, this is not something the market can address and just the need for social housing uh, grows with uh, each passing month in San Bernardino and uh, in, in many, many other places. Well, also in news of the class struggle, uh a developing story in Sacramento. California lawmakers are about to pass legislation that would boost protections for hundreds of thousands of fast food workers. Uh, a, a, a really far-reaching proposal called the Fast Food Accountability and Standards Recovery Act, which we'll never remember that, so they're calling it the Fast Recovery Act. This would create a state-appointed council of workers, employers, and state agencies. Tell us uh, what the idea of the Fast Recovery Act is. 
Well, there's another name for it, by the way, which is AB 257, Assembly Bill 257. (laughs) It's a remarkable uh, way to kind of get around the deficiencies in the National Labor Relations Act, under which it's virtually impossible for fast food workers to organize. SEIU, greatly to its credit, began a project a decade ago already to uh, uh, try to unionize fast food and to raise their wages. And they succeeded uh, terrifically in in persuading any number of states and cities to raise a minimum wage uh, in in California and New York to $15 an hour and, and, and going higher. And in New York, there was an odd thing of an industry board that Governor Cuomo, then Governor Cuomo appointed, which sought to deal with specific problems in the fast food industry. Now, that, I think, uh, may have uh, sparked the notion of going beyond that in California. What what the bill would do, as you said, would set up uh, what uh, uh, we uh, labor historians refer to as a tripartite uh, governance structure. Um, in which the working conditions of fast food workers would be determined by uh, a a group, an empowered commission uh, that includes representatives of management, uh, labor, including some workers themselves, and uh, state agencies. And it would uh, pertain to all uh, fast food uh, outlets that are part of chains that have at least 30 uh, outlets in California. In a sense, in a sense, it's a kind of form of sectoral bargaining, which is common in Europe, uh, in which uh, the auto workers, let's say, you know, uh, can get a a national contract that sets uh, sort of a floor. And then if there are labor uh, particularities, then it goes plant by plant. That's common in a number of Northern European nations. Uh, And we've had that in the private sector here where unions have been very powerful and can demand it. In particular, in auto, when back in the day when the United Auto Workers was a great, huge social democratic union, it uh, would go on strike against one of the big three auto companies uh, and craft a contract which would then be essentially accepted by the other two of the big three auto companies. This takes sectoral bargaining and uh, uh, makes it a a governmental job. The workers are not required to join unions, which is the way it kind of gets around the dysfunctions of the National Labor Relations Act, though if in fact AB 257 uh, not just passes the Senate, but gets Gavin Newsom's signature, uh, you know, I, I would expect some of the employer lawsuits would say it treads upon the National Labor Relations Act. Well, uh, I think, you know, it really doesn't, but it's a kind of an ingenious end run around a de- completely dysfunctional law. You know, I, I think there's no more uh, powerful uh, uh, progressive initiative that Gavin Newsom could uh, be part of than to sign uh, this bill once it passes the Senate. And it certainly would be something on which he, uh, if he has presidential aspirations, uh, he could tout on the campaign trail. This uh, council would promulgate minimum standards for wages, for working conditions, and it would also clarify, make it clear that the Fast food chains are responsible for the actions of their franchisees that they couldn't get out of saying, well, these are privately uh, owned 
uh, enterprises, and we don't have anything to do what what goes on there. I noticed that the that the restaurant uh, association, that's the trade association of the of the companies, has warned that if this passes in California, it could quickly go to other states. Do you think they're right about that? Well, it could go to a few blue states. This is this is really pushing the envelope of progressivism. But you could certainly imagine uh, it happening in uh, in New York, perhaps Illinois, perhaps Massachusetts, although the Massachusetts legislature has never been really as liberal as the Massachusetts reputation has it. Uh, yeah, it, 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 you know, maybe New Jersey, it could go to a range of states. And it's it's a way to another way to raise minimum wages and to give workers some power uh, in determining the conditions of their work. And just to, to sum up where we stand on this, it passed the state assembly months ago. It seems to be about to pass the state Senate, and the focus is now on getting Gavin Newsom to sign it when it arrives. And he has not endorsed this, is my understanding. Is that right? That's correct. And that is the focus at this juncture. Uh, a lot of business interests are dead set against it. But, um, you know, uh, I, I, I think it would, could be a calling card if Newsom were to run for president to progressives across America. And one last thing, news of Trump's Republican Senate candidates. Three in particular have made remarkable statements in the last uh, few weeks. A, the Trump candidate in Ohio for the Senate is author J.D. Vance, he in the past has said abortion is as morally reprehensible as slavery. And he re recently ta uh, taped surface where he's giving a speech saying it would be better for people in unhappy, violent marriages to stay together for the sake of the children. And he emphasized, even if those marriages are violent. And uh, he denounced what he called the liberal assault on the institution of marriage for making a divorce easy and, and uh, recommended in the case of violent marriages. Then in Pennsylvania, our favorite Democrat, John Fetterman, is running against Trump's candidate, TV Dr. Oz. Fetterman holds an 11-point lead. Among Republicans in Pennsylvania, just 35% say they are enthusiastic about Dr. Oz, according to a Fox News poll, and 45% of Republicans say they, quote, have reservations about their candidate. And one last note, in Georgia, Trump's candidate, of course, is Herschel Walker running for Senate. He recently suggested in an interview that the theory of evolution is incorrect uh, here was his statement, quote, at one time, science said man came from apes. If that is true, why are there still apes? Republican candidate in Georgia, I wonder if you have any comment on why there are still apes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Harold Meyerson, our expert on the theory of evolution, <laughs> read him at uh, prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. This is good. Always good to be here. Next time, ask me about general relativity. <laughs> Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, 
thinking about the left. Ever since the Supreme Court abolished constitutional protection for abortion at the end of June, activists have been fighting in the states to protect abortion rights where possible, to expand abortion rights where that's possible. And they've had some remarkable success in some surprising places, at least in the short run. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She also writes for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. Her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Well, our story begins not in the deep blue abortion rights strongholds like California or New York, but in Kansas, where Trump in 2020 got 56% of the vote, Joe Biden got 42. Abortion rights were on the ballot there on a straight yes or no vote in the first week of August. Remind us what happened. Well, it was quite remarkable uh, to the surprise of people just reading about it in the newspaper, but not so much people on the ground. Voters decided 59% to 41% to keep the right to abortion in the state constitution. Great. You know, we've, we've said that for 20 years, the country has been about at least 60% pro, 40% anti, but I never quite realized it would be the same in Kansas as nationwide, because we think of it as such a red, red state. So this means that lots of Republicans, as well as lots of independents, voted to keep abortion rights in the state constitution. Yeah, but if I could just make one little intervention here, the figures you cited of 60 and 40, it all depends on how you ask the question. When you ask the question, should abortion be banned? Very few people. It gets like 18% in some, some polls. It's all about the phrasing. Are you pro-life? Are you pro-choice? Should it always, you know, should it sometimes be banned? And it's very hard to pin this down. But this Kansas thing is really great. And I want to tell you a little bit about how that success came about. They ran, the pro-abortion rights people, ran a brilliant campaign. They talked about libertarian values. Do you want the government telling you what to do? They talked about extreme situations of health, women's health and life. They talked about rape and incest. They did, in fact, all the things that people like me have been saying, no, you shouldn't focus on all that. (laughs) (laughs) Most abortions are not because of rape, incest, or life of the woman. Um, therefore, social and economic and personal reasons. Um, they didn't go there. And that in Kansas was the right thing to do. And I congratulate them. I see, you can see some of these ads on YouTube and they're really brilliant. And then came Nebraska right next door to Kansas, where Trump got 59 and Joe Biden got 39 percent in 2020. What happened in Nebraska? Remind us. Well, people thought Nebraska would certainly be up there banning abortion any minute. Uh, The Republican governor uh, condemned the state legislators, most of whom are Republicans, for refusing to convene a special session of the states. They they only have one chamber in their legislature. So refusing to convene a special session to make abortion illegal after 12 weeks. 
um, they fell three votes short of the number needed to convene this session. That means that 69 legislators in Nebraska, more than two thirds of the legislature, oppose making abortion illegal after 12 weeks. So that's really good. And it's the direct fallout from Kansas. It's uh, the direct fallout from Kansas. See, Kansas, I think, has given people courage because we're in our lazy way. We just assume that, you know, ordinary Americans are anti-abortion and they're religious, you know, extremely religious and all like that, and that they can't make fine distinctions. For example, I think abortion is wrong, but I don't think it should be banned. I think everyone gets to decide for themselves. That's a very common position, but it is not one that gets a lot of attention. Yeah, and you're right about the libertarian case for abortion rights being so important in Kansas. People like us are very reluctant to tell people we want to keep government off our backs and out of our lives. But for a lot of people, this is a very good reason to keep abortion legal. Well, the pro-choice movement has been saying for years, you know, we don't want you don't want a policeman in your bedroom. You don't want politicians in your womb, up there in your womb, unless you invite them, unless you invite them or give birth to them, I suppose. Um, but uh, but it's true there that libertarianism is a very deep strand in American the American personality and mindset, and sometimes it works in favor of people actually having individual rights. Planned Parenthood and the ACLU and their state partners have brought a series of lawsuits in state courts arguing that state legislatures have violated those states' constitutions in banning abortion or expanding restrictions on abortion. And the courts have sided with Planned Parenthood and the ACLU in some, again, surprising places. Let's run down some of them. Uh, Montana is a place you wouldn't expect the courts to be siding with uh, Planned Parenthood and the ACLU. Yeah, the Supreme Court of Montana ruled unanimously last Tuesday in blocking new state laws that restrict abortions. Um, and those new laws would ban abortions after 20 weeks and get this, prohibit the male delivery of abortion pills for earlier term procedures. So that's really good news. I mean, the male is going to be very important. <laughs> moving forward. Um, and you definitely do not want people opening your mail to see what's in it. And we um, say the mail is very important. You do oh, not sorry. mean M-A-L-E. No, no. <laughs> um, no, the mail is very important because that is how people will be able to get abortion pills. And, and the argument of Planned Parenthood of Montana was that the state's constitution guarantees equal protection as well as privacy. Equal protection certainly is an interesting argument to make as a defense of abortion rights. Well, equal protection was uh, offered to the Supreme Court in the Roe case. You know, you can't make women suffer in a way that men don't have to suffer. This is against, you know, basic fairness of the laws. They were offered, the Supreme Court was offered that as a reason, and they didn't, they went with privacy instead. Of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought that it would have been better to place it under equal protection, but that didn't happen. So it's it's an argument that's been around forever, and it's a very good argument. So Montana has at least delayed this case from going to trial. There will be 
a trial eventually in Yellowstone County, Montana, and right next door to Montana, the Wyoming courts have also sided with Planned Parenthood recently. Yeah. So this is interesting. The judge said, a woman, mind you, the legislature cannot pass a discriminatory law on the basis of sex that restricts the constitutionally protected right to make one's own health care decisions. And that case will eventually be decided by the state Supreme Court. And North Dakota is another another state where there's a court battle going right now. It has one abortion clinic in Fargo, North Dakota, the Red River Women's Clinic. They're prepared to move across the state line to Moorhead, Minnesota, just over the bridge on the other side of the Red River. But they right now, they don't have to move. Tell us about North Dakota. So in North Dakota, courts have temp temporarily blocked trigger bans. A trigger ban is the activation of a law that was originally passed before Roe. So it's been you know, held in abeyance, but now it can come back. And some of these laws go back, you know, dec many, many decades. So temporarily, abortions can continue. But you're right that the, the Red R River Women's Clinic in Fargo is moving across the state line. And now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. A Minnesota judge recently struck down several of the state's longstanding abortion restrictions as unconstitutional, including a 24-hour waiting period and a requirement that all abortions be administered by doctors. This comes as Minnesota providers are preparing for increased demand from patients from surrounding states, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Wisconsin that are expected to pass new restrictions or to ban the procedure outright. This ruling overturned the requirement of informed consent for minors, overturned a 24-hour waiting period, overturned two-parent notification mandate for minors. And this decision also reversed the requirement that abortions after the first trimester be performed in a hospital. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. So these are the court cases. There's a caveat here. Yeah, the caveat here is that a lot of these cases will be settled in the wrong way, eventually. <laughs> eventually. Um, Eventually, uh, some of this is, I think, I fear going to be temporary. And further caveat is, I mean, it's just such a terrible moment because what's going to happen is that the people from who need abortions, who live in states that ban abortions or where they can't get abortions for one reason or another are all going to be descent or as many of them as can get there are going to be descending on the states where abortion is legal, which are not really set up to handle this sudden vast increase in patients. So what's already happening is that, that it takes longer to get an appointment. And that means you're later on in your pregnancy. You could go over from the first trimester where abortion is about $500 into the second trimester where it goes up in price every week. So it's there is really no way, much as you're trying, to, <laughs> to spin this spin this as as you know good news um it's mostly bad news i mean kansas is good news 
but it's not probably not going to be the end of the story, even in Kansas. I mean, a lot of it depends on, you know, who who's in charge. And that's why the midterms will be so important. I just can't stress that enough, that who is in the state legislature, who the governor is, who the, you know, the district attorneys are, even who's on the zoning commission, these things all matter enormously. They matter for whether your vote gets counted going forward, but they also matter for abortion rights. And I'm very glad you mentioned district attorneys because that is also the next battleground. If the states ban abortion, which lots of them are doing now and will be doing as soon as they can, there are still the cities, almost all of which are under democratic control. And that becomes the final line of defense here. And the first one to take action here is Austin, the first city to decriminalize enforcement of the state law banning abortion. The Austin City Council has directed the Austin Police Department to, quote, deprioritize investigations of criminal offenses related to abortion. This prevents the police from devoting their resources and personnel to prioritizing prosecution of those who support abortions and those who receive abortions. And now lots of other states are doing the same thing. Dallas and San Antonio have have city councils and district attorneys that have done the same thing. So have Nashville, so have Nashville, Atlanta, and New Orleans. There are nearly 90 district attorneys across the country, including at least five in Texas, who have vowed not to prosecute abortion-related violations of state law. So yeah, vote for progressive district attorneys. It's very important. Okay, that's our abortion rights report for this week. Now for something completely different. You are also writing for thenation.com this week about the attack on Salman Rushdie. Last Saturday, of course, he was attacked on stage in upstate New York and stabbed repeatedly. The attacker was arrested and charged with attempted murder. Terrible story. I know you've been thinking about this a lot. I have. And, you know, I just wish Christopher Hitchens were here, <laughs> you know, because he he was such a vigorous defender of freedom of speech. And he was, you know, such a stout atheist, which came in handy in the case of Salman Rushdie. Um, and I just think he would have had no, well, he did when, when the fatwa was announced in 1989, this has been going on for a really long time. He was just very uncompromising about um, how, whether you should curtail your speech in order to placate angry religious people. And he thought you shouldn't do that. And I agree with him. Uh, my favorite book of Rusty's is the one he wrote about his life in hiding. It's called Joseph Anton, a memoir, which was his name underground. The British police said he had to have a code name. So he, he picked the name Joseph Anton. The book starts the day. The book starts the day he received the news about being sentenced to death by Khomeini. And it names names, all the people who supported him, all the people who helped him, and all the people who didn't. I've just gotten to the part where Margaret Drabble uh, offers him her summer house. And of course, Katha, I'm sure you would offer him your summer house if he needed it. Oh, definitely. We have a spare bedroom. And it was really interesting that 
I mean, he got a tremendous amount of support, of course, in 1989 and after. But there were plenty of famous people who blamed, more or less blamed him and attacked him. For example, Roald Dahl, who was, I guess, nobody's idea of a nice guy. It turned, <laughs> uh, he called him a dangerous opportunist. Oh. Um, and uh, John le Carre, after, after Rushdie wrote an unflattering review of one of John le Carre's books, John le Carre just really went on the warpath. And he said, you know, well, I just don't know whether you should be able to, you know, burn a Koran and not have any consequences. I mean, this is not burning a Koran in the first place. This is a novel which has some dream passages that the Ayatollah Khomeini decided were blasphemous. Um, the Ayatollah Khomeini, interestingly enough, never read the book. This is something I have found to be true of most people <laughs> attack a book or a movie or a work of art. They, they, don't, they don't know what they're talking about and they don't care. Um, this was all a political move on the part of Iran to shore up support after losing the Iran-Iraq war. Yeah, that and also just to, um, to change, yeah, to change the subject, basically. And also to once, you know, if once you bring in religion, people stop thinking. That is the truth. Once you bring in religion, people stop thinking. Katha Pollitt, you can read her new piece about the attack on Salman Rushdie at thenation.com, where she writes regularly about abortion rights. Katha, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. It was really fun. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now we have a Haiti update from Amy Willens. She's written extensively about the Middle East, California, and the Trump family, but she's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book, Farewell Fred Voodoo. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, and she's the former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker. She's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks a lot, John. Well, we always start by reminding our listeners why we care about Haiti, and it's not just because it's a desperately poor country, but because Haiti had the first slave revolution in the 1790s, the largest slave uprising since Spartacus. That established the world's first black republic, and Haiti has been punished by France and the United States pretty much ever since. You say you were astonished by one piece of news about Haiti that came out last week. Tell us about that. It was an unasked for statement by the OAS, unsigned, but by the Secretary General, Luis Almagro, who wrote, it was a mea culpa, basically, saying that the international community was responsible for the decline over the last 20 years of Haiti. Do you agree with this uh, assessment? Oh, yeah. We've been saying this forever. All you had to do was watch the international community, ignoring every government or controlling every government in Haiti for the past 30 years. 
to know that uh, they were largely responsible for what's been happening in Haiti since the earthquake. And what is life like right now for ordinary Haitians in Port-au-Prince? It's just so bad. So many of my friends who have money to, to get out have gotten out. Uh, you know, very responsible people and the entire uh, professional class are sort of sitting it out in Miami so they don't get killed. But the place is being run, the capital, Port-au-Prince, being run by the gangs. There are 200 operating gangs in Haiti, estimated. Now, some of these are a little like, you know, your hometown gang, your neighborhood gang, and then some of them are running uh, gangs so big that they can close off all routes into the capital. They close off, close down the... Uh, the gasoline depot at the port and have done. Um, they they could close the airport at any given moment if they decided to do that. Uh, they took over the justice ministry and burned all the files in the justice ministry. Mm. They burned down two courts. They threatened to come down to the presidential palace. Of course, there's not a president in Haiti right now. There's just a de facto prime minister whom the international community, thank you, international community, appointed basically to be the replacement for the assassinated Jovenel Moise, who was killed a little more than a year ago with no security force to defend him and whose assassination has not even really been prosecuted yet because the suspects are just sitting in a jail in Haiti. So the OAS admits the international community is responsible for the destruction of Haiti. Who does the OAS think can fix Haiti? Well, it's a weird kind of document, this statement. It says, it says none of its, uh, branch, the branches of government is working, none of the ministries is working. And then it says that really the international community is responsible for this breakdown. And then it advises the international community is the, as Trump would say, to paraphrase, that they alone can fix it. Now that they've wrecked it, Haiti's supposed to turn to them to fix it. They will have to be involved in the solution for Haiti. And that is a terrible thing. These gangs, they're there because they're part of the country and how the country has been organized to work in the past couple of decades that they are runners and transshippers, salesmen um, and uh, wholesalers for the international car drug cartels in uh, Latin America coming through to the United States. Some of those drugs are sold in Haiti itself, but a lot of it is transshipped. And this has been going on 30 years, but it's much worse. And there's turf wars among these gangs. One recent turf war was in the very big shanty town of Cité Soleil, which was uh, developed by Papa Doc François Duvalier in the, I think, 60s or 70s to get all of the homeless people out of Port-au-Prince for some festival he was having. So he pushed them all into this place. And now it's huge. It's a huge shanty town, 200,000 people, maybe more. Um, slightly reduced recently by gang uh, turf battles within it, in which about 475 men, women, and children were destroyed in this fight. 
So that's what it's like to live in Haiti. It's not good. And the gangs are also run by various political factions. There have been actual human rights reports showing which government officials at the time were involved in various gang massacres. So to fix the gangs essentially is to fix the corruption society because people use these gangs to strong arm their rivals and to and for money. I mean, it's all about money in the end. So who can defeat the gangs? There's the Haitian police. There's the Haitian military. Yeah, I think it was 2021. The Haitian police attempted into another shantytown called Village de Dieu, the village of God, which is run by one of the gangs. And they go in this not big enough group of national police in an, in two tanks or armored cars. They were just taken out by the gang. The gangs have more men. Uh, they're probably paying better salaries than the, the national police, probably paying more regularly than the national police. And they took these guys, young men, exactly like themselves, these policemen, and they almost literally ripped them to shreds. They killed, I think, some. They burned their tanks. They stole their arms. They paraded bodies on video. It was hideous. They're very brazen, the gangs. Yeah. So this is why the OAS and lots of other people say this is a job for the American military. The American military has been there before. They have the capability. They are, in fact, we've read their their strategy is already drafted to restore order to Port-au-Prince. This would be a justified as a humanitarian intervention. But it's dangerous. That's the thing. I know the U.S. Army could defeat these gangs. Could, definitely. But if you come in in too great a force, you're going to kill a lot of civilians. The gangs have many supporters among the citizenry. And, and if you just go in full blast, full bore, you're going to kill a lot, a lot of grannies and babies. But the other thing is these people are very well armed. These people have uh, riot gear and bulletproof jackets and everything in the gangs. So it's not like the way the U.S. used to think of going into Haiti. Oh, we'll send in the Marines. It'll be a bunch of guys in blue jeans and, you know, guayaberas who will have to kill, arrest, whatever, take down, and it'll be fine. We'll just shoot whoever we need to. No, we could actually, with boots on the ground, sustain casualties. And I think that President Biden is fully aware of that and of what that's going to look like for him. Of course, historically, there's been one alternative to the American military intervening, and that is the UN. The UN sent a peacekeeping force in what, 2004, and they were there for like 15 years. Uh, remind us how the UN peacekeeping force turned out for Haiti. They were the biggest gang. They have a lot of series of sexual molestations uh, in their record. Uh, they shot a lot of people in their shanties, and they did keep a relative peace during the time they were there. And that's why people like Alma Groth say, the UN left. That was a mistake. They should have stayed. But they were part and parcel of the inability of Haiti to grow its own judicial forces, to grow its own police forces, to take control itself. But also the UN brought in something much, much worse than all of that, which is cholera. 
maybe 10,000, maybe 20,000 people. I can't even remember the number died uh, in the initial cholera epidemic. And then since then, they've been dying too. There was no cholera in Haiti before the UN came in (laughs) and befouled literally with their excrement the uh, main river of Haiti. So anytime you went to the river to wash your laundry, you got cholera, you brought it back to your village, everybody got cholera, people died, so no one could deal with it. You say that the Haitian uh, police have recently introduced a new tactic that has had a kind of success. Looking at the number of arrests and especially of uh, killings of gang leaders and gang members in the past month. Someone is operating who's different from what has been happening before. There is a force that's been sent in to advise the Haitian National Police, maybe even helping them, assisting them, working with them hand in hand. I don't know. They have gone out on sort of extrajudicial uh, shooting sprees (laughs) against the gangs and they've killed, like they'll kill nine at the same time in the kind of situation where we ask of the U.S. government when a drone kills some uh, leading terrorist figure, we say, did you have to kill 20 people along with that guy? Who are they? Were they all really little terrorists or were there some <laughs> excess people there? You kind of wonder here, too, were, there, were they all gang people? But they have had some successful engagements with the gangs. They've actually been able to say, we killed this one and the nickname of that gang leader. You've suggested the reason why Joe Biden is unlikely to order a U.S. military intervention to defeat the gangs and restore order in Haiti, especially before the midterms. But but after that, do you think he might? It could happen that Biden will just feel that the the boat people coming into Florida is not good for the next election boat people from Haiti. It alienates the uh, Cuban conservatives even more than they're alienated already. And, um, you know, he may feel that that we have to go in for some reason because Haiti is not controlling itself to our satisfaction. Oh, and because, or because too many Haitians are dying on the ground because of these gangs. You just can't predict completely what the Biden administration is going to do post midterm or pre. I mean, they could go in before, but I would be very surprised to see them have that kind of courage. On the other hand, they left Afghanistan, but not this soon before the midterms. One other story that didn't get any coverage. I saw that Haiti's prime minister, Ariel Henry, came to Los Angeles, our town, in June for the Summit of the Americas, and that he gave a speech and he met with American diplomats. I saw one photograph online where he looked splendid, really beautiful suit, but somehow this this didn't really make the news at all. He's a very handsome guy, actually, and very tall, very imposing, perfect presidential material. Unfortunately, he is a de facto prime minister and by trade a neurosurgeon, which is not doing him that much good right now because no one's coming to his operating table to be operated on. So yes, he did come to LA for the summit of the Americas. He gave a speech. Uh, It didn't really propose any changes in what he's been not doing. You know, he met with American diplomats. Well, he does that in Haiti also. So yeah, he came to LA. That's kind of (laughs) cool. I should have tried to interview him here, but I failed to because he's de facto and he doesn't do anything. So So the acting de facto prime minister does nothing, 
Haiti needs a government that does a lot. What what should this government be? There is a group that was originally called the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis, and they um, put together really a plan for um, an interim government leading to elections at the Hotel Montana in Port-au-Prince, and therefore have had the very confusing name to Americans of the Montana Group or the Montana Accord. And everybody thinks, what? They came to Montana? <laughs> no, they did not come to Montana. They went uptown. <laughs> um, so their plan is a very carefully laid out and possibly impossible plan to follow, but a carefully laid out plan of uh, this group of many, many groups. It's a, an umbrella group for about 200 groups around the country, um, peasant groups, labor groups, uh, human rights groups, political groups, grassroots groups, uh, shantytown groups, and uh, a sprinkling, a nice sprinkling of the Haitian elite, whom we've always seen the more progressive among them. Um, and they all speak English, those people at the top of this fabulous group of, of fantastic Haitians. So they can relate to the embassy and everything. And they've had talks with the embassy, but it is a big group and no one knows who will rise to the top of it. Um, but their hope is to install an interim government, um, which they've already elected. There's a president of this group, Fritz Jean is his name, and uh, to move toward reestablishing uh, a judicial process, a process of justice. What to do about the gang mem members is, of course, we've said, the most urgent problem. There are these assassination squads that are trying to kill off the leaders of the most violent and dangerous gangs, but there's many hundreds of gang members and what's going to happen to them? These are largely young men of the shantytowns. Now, I've said already, they're not necessarily running themselves, these gangs. They're being run by other stronger sections of Haitian society. So what do you do with kids from the shantytown who don't really have much future in Haiti, less and less as they destroy the society more and more, to be honest? These are 16-year-old to 22-year-olds. Uh, some of the gang leaders are in their 30s. They're people. Many of them are people who have left the police because the police didn't offer enough. They offered a weapon. The police offered a salary. Sometimes the salary was paid. Sometimes it wasn't. It was very low. There were no benefits. It's very different in a gang. In a gang, you get paid a lot. You're risking a lot. You get paid in kind sometimes. In drugs, you get paid money. It's more money than the police get, and it's pretty regular as long as you do what is necessary, what you're called on to do. So to integrate them, the, say, Montana group, should it come to power by some incredible fortune, would have to offer them real jobs with real money and a future. That would have to be uh, underwritten probably by the international community, that kind of money that you would need to reintegrate the all the members of the 200 uh, gangs in Haiti plus more and start dealing with the shantytowns themselves in general. So you have to give these people a reason to want to live longer and make a steady income instead of live shorter and make a lot of money. Um, and you have to get their guns away from them to get a gun away from 
a child, say a fake gun away from a small child, I've dealt with three male children, um, <laughs> is very difficult. To get a big real gun away from a big teenage kid is really, really hard. You have to convince them they're going to go on living without that gun and that they're going to have a way to live a decent life after that. And by decent, I mean a life not just bearable, but with maybe a little nice thing here and there, the way we have in our lives. They would like that. It's going to be a hard road to hoe. Do you think they can get out from under these gangs? Well, the IRA was disarmed. The IRA is a much better organized yeah. army. But it's a hierarchical army. It's a hierarchical army with a long history. And if their it's, leaders say, we've signed this. It. I mean, I think it can be done, but you have to talk to the people who are running the gangs. Now, they all know who's running the gang. As I always like to say about Haiti, the top people know everything that's happening. You just have to pull it out of them and they won't tell reporters. But they know who to talk to. And maybe if you can convince those people, but, you know, those people, some of them are hardened criminals. The L.A. gang truce was organized basically by, by uh, reformed OGs, original gangsters, older survivors who could right. see that this really wasn't much of a life. Yeah, but you see... In the L.A. gangs, this was a community preying on itself. Yeah. So it was gang wars inside the ghetto preying on each other. This is a whole country. So these people are not preying on each other, although to an American, they might all look the same. They're preying on the political class. It's like if, if the Crips were assassinating the mayor. If the <laughs> Crips went into yes. the courthouse downtown and took it over and burned it down. That's what's happening. So it's harder to deal with, and it's more important. Amy Willens, she wrote about ha Haiti most recently for The Nation in a piece titled The OAS Admits Culpability in the Destruction of Haiti. You can read it online at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome, John. it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livinginthusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Mm -hmm.